Good morning. Uh, the last few weeks have felt like simultaneously really refreshing, but also a little heavy as far as what we feel like God has been directing us in a, together as a church. Um, a few weeks ago, as Matthew mentioned, I preached a sermon about rest, and that sounds like really great, like, yay, rest. But also in that message, I gave a challenge from Hebrews 3 and 4 that rest is linked very closely to our obedience. And um, then last week, Robert gave an amazing sermon on a call to obedience. And um, so I'm just going to keep on with the same theme this morning, okay? Um, because it does feel like this is a critical thing that the Lord is saying to our congregation and talking with Charles and talking with other pastors in our, in our, in our leadership team. It just feels like, hey, this is a really heavy thing that the Lord is calling us, us to take seriously. Um, right now. So I'm going to um, kind of pick up where I left off two weeks ago and dive more into Hebrews 3 and 4. So um, beginning, like Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, it kind of has two bookends. Like when my uh, daughter was born, I had this really idealistic view of I was going to be that mom that read to my kid every night and didn't happen. Uh, but, so I had like, we had a bookshelf with all the kid books and bookends, right? And they were really cute little Winnie the Pooh bookends. And it kind of held it all together, right? So there is a bookend at the beginning of chapter 3 and a bookend at the end of chapter Chapter four, and so those are going to be the part that holds it all together. But right in the middle is where the real stuff is—the books that you're supposed to read to your kids. But sometimes you don't, and that's okay. There's grace for that. Uh, so let's start with Hebrews chapter three, verses one and two. And uh, this is out of the NIV. All of these scriptures are out of the NIV. If you're curious. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So book in number one is fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's faithful not only is he faithful to you, but he was faithful to all of the really hard things that God asked of him to. He was faithful in his life. And because we have such a faithful, good king, we can fix our eyes on him and have hope. Okay? So now we're going to take a detour through the bookshelf. Okay? So, um, beginning here in the next few verses in chapter 3, I'm not going to read it all because reading all of chapter 3 and chapter 4, you guys would get bored. So, let me, let me give you this summation, right? Okay. So, uh, the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who the writer is, but uh, he starts then recounting some stories that his Hebrew audience would be very familiar with, okay? So, let's go to storybook number one in, in his story. Um, and that's the story of the Exodus, the story where um, really kind of the, the, the nation of the Israelites was birthed. They had been slaves in Israel, I mean in Egypt, sorry, for 400 years. Okay, and it's like real slavery, right? 
um, up to the point where it was getting worse and worse at the end. The slavery was so intense that the demands on them were more than were humanly possible. And they were, they were not only were they dying because of the work, but Pharaoh was killing their children. I mean, this was an evil, evil slavery. Um, but what happens is God delivers them, right? God takes them out of Egypt miraculously. He, so much so that he parts a sea so that they can walk through on dry land. He miraculously saves them. They plunder the Egyptians and they walk through on dry land into freedom. Okay, book number one. Book number two in our, on our bookshelf is right after that, beginning in Exodus 16. And again, this lasts a few chapters, so I'm not going to read it all. But let me just hit, hit some of the highlights, okay? So, I'm sorry, actually starting in chapter 15. So, they cross the, the, they've been miraculously delivered from the Egyptians. They cross on dry land through an ocean. They get to the other side. God has shown himself faithful, faithful, faithful. He has shown himself powerful, mighty, and true, right? But like they get to the other side and they find some water to drink and it doesn't taste very good. It's bitter, right? And so they start grumbling. They start complaining. Like, gosh, we got all the way from Egypt to have some bitter water? What's up with that, God? So they skip down a few verses. They've gotten their water, and they're like, oh, we're hungry. God, at least in Egypt, they fed us. Well, they fed you because they wanted your work out of you, right? And even then, they didn't feed you well. But like in Egypt, we had food. Oh, my gosh. Why did you bring us here, God? Out of slavery, right? <laughs> so what does he do? He gives them manna. Every day... For 40 years, he miraculously provides them with food. They don't, they don't have to cultivate it. They don't have to grow it. They don't have to hunt it. It, like, comes out of the ground, like, ready to eat. Like, they don't even need a microwave, right? They just eat off of the ground, right? Um, so skip over to, to Exodus 32. Then what you see happening is... So then Moses goes up to the mountain, up to Mount Sinai, and he's up there having a pretty long conversation with God. He's getting all the Ten Commandments. He's getting all the instructions for the tabernacle. This is taking a while, right? Meanwhile, the Israelites are down at the bottom of the mountain going, um, what do we do? I'm getting a little impatient here. Are we just standing around? Like, wh where, where are we going to go? What's our home going to be? Like, something seems wrong. Like, Moses has been up there a long time. Did something happen? Did, what if we're just waiting for Moses to come back and he's dead up there, right? Like, what, 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 do, we, what do we need to do? Okay, so then they have a brilliant idea. <laughs> Some of you know where I'm going with this. Exodus 32. Yeah, we should have it up here. Maybe? Yes. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, who was their priest, and said, make us some gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. <laughs> Aaron answered them, okay, 
take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made into it an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, the calf. So the next day, the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. After the, afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. Okay, so that's book number two or three along in our process, right? Uh, the next book in our bookshelf, Numbers 14. So finally, I mean, God has to deal with them and figure out the whole golden calf thing, like, no, that's not a good idea. Um, but still, they're, they're pretty slow to figuring out this whole God is your redeemer and your savior thing, right? Um, so God says to them, I've got a home for you. I've got a promised land for you. It's flowing with milk and honey. And um, so they, uh, he shows them where it is. They even send out some spies to go check out the land. And they say, yeah, it's exactly what God said. There's like fruit as big as a person. And, and it's, you know, it's all of this really great stuff. But there's these people that live there. And I don't think they're going to like the idea of us being there. And they will kill us. Okay? So immediately, like, like, not even a second thought. Like, immediate reaction to the spies' report of what they saw in the promised land. Uh, we see it in Numbers chapter 14. They, um, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but basically they say, Oh, no. Why did God bring us to this terrible place? What, we should have, again, just stayed in Egypt stayed in slavery. At least we had a house. At least we weren't going to be killed. Yeah, they were, by the way. Yeah, they were being killed. But they, they, they keep on going back to the old mindsets, right? It's better back there, right? It's better back there. And God gets so mad this time. He's like, forget it. You, the, all of you are so unbelieving, that I'm going to wait until this whole generation dies and then I'll let your kids go to the promised land because you have not trusted me. I have been faithful to you. I have been faithful to you. I have delivered you. I have shown my power for you. I have done thing after thing after thing for you. Every time you needed something, I was there. I gave you exactly what you needed and still you didn't trust me. You didn't obey me. You didn't follow me. So these are the stories that the writer of Hebrews is referencing in chapters three and four of the book of Hebrews. So if we go back to Hebrews chapter three, I took my bookmark out. Um, the writer of Hebrews is talking about these stories that happened, that the, the Hebrew audience that he's writing to, they know these stories very well, the ones that I just outline to you. And so he's, the author of Hebrews is saying, um, he's quoting from Old Testament scripture. This is a direct quote. Um, so as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do we have that up there? Thank you. 
Um, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Talking about those very episodes back in Exodus and Numbers. Uh, During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and they tried me. And for 40 years, they saw what I did. So for 40 years, he had shown his faithfulness, but for 40 years, they kept on defying it. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger that they will never enter my rest. They will never enter enter that place of rest that he had for them in in the promised land. The next generation was able to because they grumbled so much, because they fought God's goodness every step of the way, they weren't going to be able to enter his rest. And so that's the end of the quote from Old Testament scripture. And now he's speaking, uh, the author speaking directly to his contemporaries. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So, What we see the writer of Hebrews doing is he's closing a gap. The Hebrews in first century Judea, many of whom may have actually been witnesses to Jesus on earth, they were still constantly tempted to go back to religious Judaism back into their old ways, back into what they had learned rather than trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus to forgive them of their sins and to bring them into freedom, okay? So the writer of Hebrews is artfully closing the gap between what seemed like, well, it was 1,500 years before them, what seemed like so long ago, 1,500 years ago the Israelites did this thing, and he's closing the gap to what he was seeing in front of his face right now. He's saying, Hebrews... You're doing the same thing. You're going back to old mindsets. You're going back to a different way of thinking that I haven't called you to. Jesus has been faithful to bring you into a new kingdom reality. And you're going back. You're going back into uh, the Mosaic law. And so um, he spends chapter one of Hebrews saying, uh, making an argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then he takes chapter two to make an argument that, you know what, Jesus is even greater than Moses. And so he's saying, if Jesus is greater than Moses, why, why do you give up the gift of Jesus to go back to the old Mosaic law? Okay? So he's closing the gap between what seems like, that was thousands of years ago, I can't even relate to that, to you're doing it today. Okay? So now, let me close the gap again and come to 2018. Okay? It seems ridiculous that a bunch of people would take their earrings and make a golden calf, right? That just seems ridiculous, okay? It's what they knew. Their culture told them, if things aren't going your way, there must be a God that you haven't pleased. And that God needs to have an idol built, and you need a sacrifice to it. They were going back away from the God who delivered them into the mindset of the culture around them. It's everything that they had seen around them. In Egypt, as slaves, they were the ones building the temples to these gods. They knew how to build an idol. They'd been doing it for centuries. 
So what do they do when they don't know what God's doing in their life? They go back to building idols. They've been doing it for 400 years. Okay? So, it's easy to kind of comically dismiss what they did by building a golden calf. Is it so different than the sacrifices that we make to our idols? What are your idols? What are the idols of our culture? It's, maybe it's too hard to even think about what are your idols. But what are the idols in our culture? Money, sex. Uh, as Robert artfully said last week, a hermeneutic of happiness. I love that. Thank you, Robert. I'm going to steal it all a bunch of times today. <clears throat> so I went on just a curiosity quest this week to notice the idols in our culture, okay? Now, I didn't, like, go looking for them. Like, I didn't go, like, hunting down, like, what are the most base and irreverent things in our culture? I'm like, just the things that I encountered in my rather benign life, okay? And um, I kind of put these in two different categories, an idolatry of self-sufficiency and an idolatry of happiness. We have an idolatry in our culture of self-sufficiency. You have within you all that you need for the life that you want to live. You can do it. Just get the right resources. Do the right things. You can have the life you want to have. Self-sufficiency. Or how about this? If you just try hard enough, you can accomplish anything. You can, you can do anything. Anything you set your mind to, you can do. Um, I found this in a few places. Uh, Zach, I don't know if you've got that on the slide. The idolatry of self-sufficiency. Uh, I did an update on my iPad, and you know what popped up? Take control. <laughs> uh, my kids were listening to the Karate Kid theme song. You're the best around. Nothing's going to ever keep you down. Right? Okay, here's another good one from High School Musical, Troy Bolton. The answers are all inside of me. All I got to do is believe. Any High School Musical fans or moms of fans? <laughs> Everyone needs a little Zac Efron in their life. Uh, so, I mean, you can see, like, I didn't have to go looking far. These were on my kids' playlist, right? All you got to do is believe. You can do it. Self-sufficiency. How many sacrifices have you made at the altar of self-sufficiency? So here's another one. Idolatry of happiness, or as uh, Robert said last week, a hermeneutic of happiness. That means like interpreting the world through a film of seeking my own happiness. It's written into our Declaration of Independence, right? You have a pursuit of happiness. Every man and woman has the right to a pursuit of happiness. So here are some um, things that I saw this week. I saw a t-shirt that said, life is short, take the trip, buy the shoes, eat the cake. 
makes you happy, just do it. Doesn't matter if your bank account's at zero, just take the trip. <laughs> um, I saw this pop up on a social media thing. Do it because you want to, because it's fun, because it makes you happy. Fill in the blank with it for whatever makes you happy, right? Do it, right? Um, I went through the Freddy's drive-thru and I said, why settle for less <laughs> than Freddy's custard? Bob's is right next door, but no, why settle for less? You need Freddy's. <laughs> and that got me thinking about all the times we see you deserve or we say you deserve blank. We see it in advertisements, everything from gym memberships to cosmetics to everything. You deserve to look your best. You deserve, and we say it to each other. You, your boss is being really grouchy too. You deserve something better than that. Really? Maybe Jesus is asking you to stick with it and to submit yourself to that rotten boss. Right? but you deserve better. You deserve better than that. So this is the culture that we are ingrained in, just like the Hebrews were ingrained in a culture that said, it, said you need to build an idol made out of gold and you need a sacrifice to it. We are doing the same things and we are sacrificing to the idols of self-sufficiency and happiness. What have you sacrificed for your own happiness lately? Oftentimes, our theology of what God really wants for us can be seen in what we don't say as much as what we do say. Um, I, I looked really, I tried to find online the, the place where I had read this, so I may, I may be misquoting this, but um, I, I read a, an article about a study this guy did um, based on the Psalms, which are worship songs, right? The book of Psalms is 150 worship songs compared to American worship songs. He found that 40% of the Psalms talked about grief, hardship, the pain of doing what Jesus says, or God in the Old Testament. God, you have destroyed me. God, you have led me into painful situations. It's all through the book of Psalms, right? 40% of the Psalms had that as the primary theme. Many of those Psalms do come at the end to say, to remind us of God's goodness and faithfulness, not all of them. But the main point of 40% of the Psalms is the pain and the struggle that goes with the life of someone who is following the ways of God. Okay, that, what uh, this guy did is then he compared the CCLI top 100. And you know, like when we have worship songs, that little fine print that's at the top, I mean the bottom right of every screen, first screen, and sometimes it's annoying because it covers up the words. That's like a copyright thing. Uh, CCLI is an organization that you pay for a membership and then you have the rights to use those songs in a worship service. So they track across the nation 
how, what, what songs are being sung in churches. So all of the songs that we sung this morning, CCLI knows that we, we sang them, right? So they had, he looked at the top 100 songs that Christians are singing in our churches. Two of them talked about suffering in the life of the Christian. So what is it that we're not saying to each other, folks? And here's the thing. If your theology is based solely on what you're singing, the books you're reading, the sermons you're listening to, and not the word of God itself, you are being fed a gospel that's going through a filter of someone else's possible idolatry of self-sufficiency and happiness. You have got to go to the source. You have got to go to the word of God as your source for what is reality. Jesus, help me shift my reality because I am surrounded. I am infiltrated. Everyone from Troy Bolton on the High School Musical to the Karate Kid is feeding me idolatry that I don't want to follow. So the God that you worship, does he cater to you? Does he want what's best for you? Is he interested in making you self-sufficient? If that's the God you've been worshiping, it's probably an idol, not the real God. <laughs> so you will sacrifice your life on an altar. Is it the altar of our society or is it the altar of Jesus? What are you going to sacrifice your life for? You're sacrificing your life right now on an altar. Which altar is it? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds have got to be constantly, constantly renewed. You know why? Because we're living in an Egypt, okay? And, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that to like down America. That's not what I'm saying. We're living in something other than the kingdom of God. So wherever we were on the planet, it would be that, right? So, that, so don't make a political statement out of what I just said. That's not what I'm, I'm not going there. Uh, but, but, um, so back to the scripture. Um, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, his pleasing, his perfect will. We've got to be transformed by the good news of the gospels, uh, by the word of God. I know even this week, like, I was flipping through some passages, and for whatever reason, probably God, the passages I kept going to kept on talking about God's wrath. I'm like, I don't want to think about God's wrath. It's contrary to my idol of happiness. <laughs> but guess what? It's in the Bible. And we have to really wrestle with this stuff, folks, because it confronts everything that you are being fed from our culture, from the enemy, day in, day out. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 
You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We, this whole self-sufficiency thing, it's almost an affront to say, you don't get a right to choose what you do with your life. Jesus can tell you what to do with your life. Okay, if that sounds harsh, you've got an idolatry of self-sufficiency. Jesus can tell you what to do with your life. As Robert was saying last week, even for Peter, if that means you go die on a cross today, he can tell you what happens to your life. And again, oftentimes, when we don't know the difference between what God wants for us and what we think God wants for us, the Word of God is our source. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. We don't like those words, by the way, rebuking, correcting, because they like rub up against my happiness and my self-sufficiency, right? I don't need to be rebuked or corrected because I'm self-sufficient. But the word of God, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. We don't just like, there's two kinds of righteousness. There's imputed righteousness where by the cross, you have everything that Jesus fought for. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. And he has bought your righteousness with a price. Then there's another righteousness, the righteousness that we learn step by step, day by day, to live in through the hard times and the the harder times and the harder times, you know? And it doesn't get easier. What God asks of it doesn't get easier on the other side of today's obedience. You know what will be on the other side of today's obedience? More obedience. (laughs) So this is what the author of Hebrews is saying to us in these books on the bookshelf. He's saying the reason why they could not enter God's rest is because they were not obedient. He's saying the same thing to us today. You will not enter into that place of rest with him until you are obedient. Obedient to the point of death. And sometimes that sounds trite. Like, Jesus, I'd die for you. Okay, well, will you not get angry at your spouse today? Right? Let's start at like A before we jump to Z. Okay? Will you, I don't know, give away some money that he asked you to give away today? Oh, no, 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 no. But I'll die for you, Jesus. So we see the writer of Hebrews coming back to this call of obedience and he's saying that you're not going to find the rest that you're looking for. To them, it was by going back to those mosaic rules, going back to that place of religion. You're not going to find the rest that you're looking for. And I'm here to say to you today, you will not find the rest that you're looking for when you're seeking after self-sufficiency and happiness. You won't. You won't find the rest you're looking for. You won't. And so the other bookend, let's get to the other bookend. Just like uh, the writer of Hebrews started this section by talking about Jesus. And he is so good. And he is so faithful. This is the good news. So let's bring it back around to the other bookend. He comes, uh, he ends this section in 414. He brings it back to Jesus. There is good news in this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So we can hold firmly to our faith. We can walk in that place of obedience because of 
Jesus. We don't have to do it on our own. We're not without help. For we, do not, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We're weak in these things. But we have a high priest, right? We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So if walking that place of obedience seems just too hard, guess what it is? You can't do it on your own. Otherwise, you're going back to that self-sufficiency. Whatever God's asking of you right now, yeah, it's too hard. But you have Jesus. You have this throne of grace that you can boldly come to, and he will help. Not only will he help, but he's an empathetic helper. He has been there. He has been in the Garden of Gethsemane saying to the Father, I don't want to die, but if you ask me to, I will. So we can do the same thing. We can come to Jesus and say, I don't want to do this X, Y, Z that I know you're asking me to do, this thing you're asking me to give up, this thing you're asking me to walk into. I don't want to go there. But if you go with me, I will. I will. So there is good news and hope for you. Jesus, the great intercessor, the great high priest, will go with you. And you're right, you can't do it. And that flies in the face of our idol of self-sufficiency. But all the more reason to lean on Jesus. And that's all I got, folks. <laughs> um, Chantal, can you guys come on up? I was being pretty deliberate about pushing some buttons today. In case you didn't notice. So... If you had a few uh, buttons pushed that you need to talk to someone about, we have a really great ministry team. Or talk to someone else in the congregation. More, even better than that, talk to Jesus. But, and because he is your high priest. Um, but can we go ahead and have the ministry team come forward too, please? And I know we've got a lot of our team gone. Um, so if you have ever been on the ministry team or you've ever been told you should be on the ministry team, come on up. And... Um, these people are here to pray for you for anything that you need, whether it's physical healing, emotional support, or in response to today's message. But we just want to leave some room for if you want prayer for anything, come up to the ministry team. They will be glad to, to help you. Our worship team is going to lead us back into worship for a few more minutes, and then we'll officially close out in 10 minutes at noon.